Hi there, listeners. This is a content warning. This episode contains some explicit language and descriptions of sex and pornography. On another note, we recorded this story in one of the Wesleyan practice rooms, which are not perfectly soundproof, so at some points you may hear some singing or music in the background that seeped into our audio. Just a heads up. Enjoy the story, and thank you for listening. It's hard to live in a body knowing that it is also like an object like that the whole way you've been taught to view and understand what a person is is like antithetical to what you are welcome to rearview the podcast that brings you stories larger than they appear stories we look back on to move forward in each episode an anonymous storyteller reflects on small moments from their life that unfold into large narratives exploring the way that our most minute and intimate memories end up being some of the biggest things we think about we live in a world swirling with tropes and stereotypes what happens when they change the way you see yourself what happens when you your body and your identity are reduced to an idea no longer an individual In this episode, our storyteller explores a moment when the power of sexual and racial mythology is crystallized. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the story. The first time I had sex was definitely sort of the moment that all of this sort of centers around. That definitely was sort of the big moment in my life where I felt the sort of great social specter of racial politics, especially on like sexual contact between white women and black men, affected my life in a really huge way. It's definitely something that exists in the atmosphere, and in, in my own atmosphere, regardless of my contact with other people. Like, it's something that I've thought about and had to think about for a long time. I'm 21 years old. I'm a man. I'm black, African-American. I'm from the South. I definitely grew up sort of a shut-in. I was not a person who necessarily had a huge number of friends. I, I spent most of my childhood inside reading books. And in terms of sex and sexual behavior, that stuff really wasn't on my radar until like mid-late puberty. I mean, I, I really distinctly remember like hearing people talk about sexual topics and like asking like, oh, hey, what does that mean? And people like laughing at me, <laughs> which was, you know, like funny in retrospect, but at the time I was like, what's the problem? <laughs> The way I thought about sex um, and sexual activity was really primarily shaped by two sources. My parents and their generation of people whose advice on sex was all very safety-oriented, like not, not necessarily even in terms of like not getting an infection or, you know, not getting someone pregnant, but also like legal forms of safety, like what kinds of people is it safe to and to not have sexual contact with. And then the other side was pornography. So I'll start with my parents because that's quicker. Uh, <laughs> so there were sort of foundational sexual warnings in my early life. The first one, which I got mostly from men, and the older, the more emphatic, was never be alone with a white woman in a context in which you were capable of being accused of sexual assault. I remember when I was in fifth grade, my grandfather showed me a VHS about Emmett Till's lynching. I mean, it was really, really horrible. I mean, you know, it has the pictures of him and everything. I was like, whoa. We talked about it afterwards. And he was like, yeah, it's just, it's important for you to, to understand the world that you're living in. Essentially, essentially the warning is, these people don't care about you and will throw you under the bus given the opportunity. So you need to protect yourself in a legal sense and never be, put yourself in a situation where if that accusation is made, you can't necessarily have any evidence-based way to defend yourself because the courts will not hear what you have to say. My father had pretty similar advice as someone in the like 70s, 80s living in the South. He 
told me, you know, I knew a guy who had a white girlfriend, and one day he went to her neighborhood to visit her and just never came back. Like, we just never saw him again. Like, it's lesson one from older generations was white women are not safe, <laughs> like, either because they themselves will falsely accuse you if you don't do anything, or because the people around them will, will be violent. Um, and then pornography is a whole sort of other mess of myth and symbol. I don't know. I think, you know, porn exists to sort of both create and feed fantasy. And I think, I, mean, I think pornography is not an unusual first exposure to sexual image for young people. I, don't, I wouldn't know if it was my first. Because of the aforementioned reading habit, I like read a lot of shit about sex that I was probably too young to read or understand. But by and large, I think pornography had a very large influence on how I began early on to conceptualize sexual relationships between black people, and black men specifically, and, and white women. I think the, the question of like other sort of gendered relationships is really different. Although, I think it's still worth saying that pornography is definitely marketed to, I guess, the average male gaze, and average definitely means white in, in our, like, American Western milieu. So, all of this stuff that I'm sort of going to describe, I came to sort of realize, I mean, when I was 12, I didn't know about any of this, but over my time, I sort of came to realize in bits and pieces that the images that I was seeing were meant for people who were not me. So black men and white women in porn are a different species of human being than black men and white women in real life. There are no black men under 5'11 in porn at all. They just don't exist. Maybe 50% of them are robbing your house at any given time. They all have tattoos. They're all very muscular. I mean, really, really, one of the things that struck me is that most of the black men in pornography are very beautiful. Their skin looks beautiful. You know, they've got, like, tattoos, and they're, like, tall, and they have nice hair. And especially in sort of more highbrow studios they'll be they'll be wearing like very expensive clothing and there's sort of definitely this sense of power i guess that comes not just from sort of an animalistic more overtly sort of like ape like whatever racist portrayal of black men definitely suggests a kind of masculinity that often the sort of white male pornography protagonist if we're gonna <laughs> put it that way doesn't have just as another point the black men in porn are really heavily i think oversampled from like the highest outliers of dick size. So, like, black men in porn always have huge dicks. Just complete, uh, unbelievable. I don't think anyone listening will not be familiar with the, the stereotype that black men have huge dicks. And the white women are always, almost always, universally small. So the, the juxtaposition is sort of about the, like, small white woman who's sort of emblematic of, like, fragility and femininity and all those things white women are supposed to do. And then the black man as sort of the, like, masculine figure who's so who's strong and viral and confident and very very beautiful and also has a huge dick because that's what he's supposed to do. I wouldn't say I had a preference for this genre but I certainly saw a lot of it and it really influenced like it added something new to I think like the parental warning narrative that was going on not just oh like this group of people is potentially sort of unsafe but that I think among black men there is certainly a fetishization of non-black women and especially white ones just turn on like any fucking song you can imagine right so I think all of this came together to sort of mean that I understood black men and white women having sexual contact as being a unification of things that white women want in black men, namely like their dicks and the perception of their coolness and confidence and that the image is as important as the physicality. And then for black men, I think maybe sort of an access to feelings of 
power feelings of superiority even the superiority coming out of the out of the interaction between emblematic feminine and like the emblematic masculine the feminine so fragile that all it can sort of do is helplessly be there at the mercy of the masculine and the masculine so potent that it's enlarged and more powerful in every in every possible way and sort of exists to subject the feminine in a certain sense but the black man in that scenario is the least powerful person there they're less powerful than the white male viewer for whom all of this is taking place, for whose pleasure all of this really centers around. And you can see that in the cinematography. I mean, some of the shots is just like, you can see a little bit of brown thigh and then like the dick and like the balls and then that's it. You know what I mean? The rest of the body is just not there. The person just, you know, they don't even matter. And then you would imagine that the sexual encounter is for the black man's pleasure because, oh, he's so dominant in this, in this scenario. But really, I would say pornography like that I mean, to use sort of high school English terms, the black man in that scenario is a static character. Nothing about him changes, right? Like, he is sort of an essential core of himself and isn't moved from that. The The tension in those dramas comes between the contact between the white woman who is ripe, fertile, these these words are getting out of control, um, subject for the kind of domination that the black man is supposed to represent. So the white woman is changed by the encounter, I think is what a lot of this pornography is about. She's changed psychologically, she's changed sexually. You know, you'll hear like, oh, like once you go back, you never go back, stuff like that. The white woman is, is the one whose pleasure really matters because her pleasure is transformative. Whereas the black man's pleasure is just neutral, inert. It's, it's going to be what it is. It's contact with it that, that changes everything. And so then we come to my first year here at Wesleyan. I didn't do a lot of dating in high school, and I certainly wasn't having any sex. So I came to Wesleyan, you know, sort of eyes aflame, ready to live my college life, rose-tinted glasses on, right? Not necessarily thinking, like, I'm gonna fuck all the time, but I was open to every avenue of the college experience, I guess if that's what I'm saying. Like, I was excited to go to class, I was, like, excited to go out, I was excited to drink, and I was definitely excited to have sex. So me and this person met at some, like, silly theme party and just had completely inexplicable chemistry. I, I, I specifically remember we were like watching a movie in a, in a room with like five other people and we weren't speaking or looking at each other, but the whole time there was just some weird fucking thing going on. Things like that are just odd, I don't know, it's the chemistry of life. And then we left at the same time. We both left, but I like lived near where it was. Like the implication was that we were going to go our separate ways after walking a short bit. And then we did and we went back to our place and made out. But not the sort of like episode one. And then episode two, a while later was there was this play that was going up at Wesleyan. So I went to this play and it was incredible. And she also was going, so we sat together and watched the play. And I, I just remember I was my mind was fucking blown. Like I wasn't thinking about anything with the play after we left. But we left the play and we were like chatting about it. And we were walking back up uh, Willis Ave. And she was like, oh, do you want to come back to my place and have sex? And I was like, yes! I mean, what I said was sure. Um, but, <laughs> but like, you know, internally, my internal life was like fireworks. We made it. So so we went back to her room and we had sex and it was excruciating. So we got to the room. Um, we, we might have made out. I can't remember exactly. And, you know, clothes started coming off. I'd never been actually and seriously, like, naked in front of another person before that, I think. So I was just, like freaking out. You know what I mean? Like, I was just, like, not mentally in a good spot. This process was super gradual. I mean, I was sort of nervous to start, because who wasn't nervous the first time they were having sex? That was also the first time I ever went down on someone, and it was really bad. I was 
horrible at it. And I think it's pretty common. Like, I definitely have gifted kid syndrome where, like, if I'm not good at something instantly, I'm like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me and I'm gonna die. And that was like, ugh, shoot me. Needing needing advice for anything, you know what I mean? Like, needing to ask for help. It's horrifying, horrifying. But anyway, so I was miserable at that for a minute. And then there was sort of, like, condoms, and I think we started out... This is just gonna be crude. Um, so we started out standing up. And we tried standing up with her facing me and with her not facing me. It just didn't work. Something about our heights and, like, leg lengths and all this stuff. You, nobody ever tells you that sex is a matter of leg length. Nobody tells you that. Leverage is so important. Anyway, so kids, if you're listening and you haven't had sex, it's not as easy as it looks. You will have to try so You will have to try a lot of things. So after, like, figuring that that totally wasn't going to work, we got in the bed. And then at one point she was like, oh, can you, like, pin my arms down while we're having sex? And I was like, I mean, sure, whatever floats your boat. But as I was doing it, I felt this really wild sense of distance from what I was doing. It was so easy, having had that, like, pornographic background, to understand what I was doing as this sort of acting out, like a trope. Like, at the time, my feelings were not like, you know, it would be really hot, like, pinning this person's arms down. Like, I was just chill. I was just, like, chill to have a normal time having sex. So, like, being asked to, like, assume this sort of dominant, aggressive even, you know what I mean? Like, putting someone's arm down, that's, that's sort of like, you're at my mercy kind of move. And I was like, you know, this really isn't me. My increasing discomfort became, like, the distance between what my partner at the time wanted from me and I think what I was ready to sort of bring to the situation. I do want to say, like, I can't say anything definitive about her intention or, like, her, you know, feelings on all of this. But my feeling as this opposite number and the sort of, like, drama that was unfolding was that, like, I definitely wasn't fit for that part and, like, didn't want it. But once I realized that that's how I felt, that, like, I felt like I was playing this part and this role, I just started, like, laughing. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine how this experience was for the other person. But, like, I mean, I was so embarrassed to, like, be in that position. I, I didn't feel as sort of empowered in the way that I might have come to expect. It, it was really, it was really humiliating. I felt very dissociated from my role and what was going on. I didn't really feel like it had much to do with me. That was a role that was so far from how I saw myself and how far from how I wanted to be seen. So anyway, I didn't, at no point during this encounter did I have an orgasm. Uh, I mean, neither did she, but that was my fault, not hers. It's all weirdly psychological, and there was no way I was having an orgasm under the psychological circumstances. The initial sort of penetration process was a pretty laborious thing. Like, it was very slow and very careful. It was, like, an adjustment process for her, which was sort of the first flag, you know what I mean, in the, like, in the, in the trope deal. You know, I, I'm, I'm under no illusions about my dick. I have a normal dick, and I'm, I'm bisexual, so it's important to note that I have been around many dicks, and I have a normal one. So the first, like, big, you know, sort of weird and not right red flag for me was, why is this such a production? You know what I mean? Like, I don't have a dick that's so, you know, egregiously large that you would expect, that sort of thing. But, you know, she responded to it in a way that I felt was a little bit outside the <laughs> the realm of reasonable responses to what I had going on. So after we finished having sex, you know, she was, like, you know, tapped out. And we were just, like, sort of sitting there cuddling, and because she had mentioned it being larger than what she's used to, I asked her if it was, like, just the largest in general. And she said yes, and I just laughed for ages. That was an interesting moment for me, and, like, I knew that I should not ask that question. I don't think I wanted to know the answer to it, but because I knew that that sort of stuff was in the air, it felt like, you know, like a scab or something. Like, I wanted to know. Then she sort of gently kicked me out of her room, and I walked back to my dorm, and, like, halfway back to my dorm, I was like, oh, 
I guess I've had sex now. That's pretty great. You know what I mean? And, like, sort of completely ignored all of the, like, very not great emotional stuff that I had gone through during the encounter to be like, but now you have this social validation point, so check that one off the list. We, we made it, boys. And that was sort of the way that I immediately processed it. I mean, it was funny. You would think, you know, like, I would go home and cry or something. But I totally reframed. In the minutes after, I totally reframed the experience. I realized then that the dissonance between just being a person who is Black and having a relationship to those tropes of masculinity and actually being myself and, and negotiating between those things was a much more tricky process. To be an object, even in the sense of inhabiting a shell of tropes about what people like me are like was just totally not acceptable for me. Like, that stuff's really embarrassing to me. Even if it should be complimentary, I don't see myself as an object. And I realized that all of those tropes are deeply objectifying, so that there was no real way for me to have sexual relations with people who saw me in that way, or who I felt even were asking me to do things that involved that sort of pageantry. There was no way for me to do that without coming away from it feeling like I had been forced into like this weird jive routine with someone. Like those weird sort of sambo dances where people are in blackface and goofing around. Like that's sort of how I felt in that context. Like a parody of myself for someone else's enjoyment is really how that kind of stuff makes me feel. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't had a sexual experience of that type. After that, my self-perception has changed a lot. So like that event really created a new sense in me. Because before it, I had like kissed people and made out with people and stuff like that, but nothing super overtly sexual, right? And I had never felt before that I was an object. Like I had never gotten a sense of like how me and my body and myself interacted with ideas of how other people perceived black people or black men specifically in this case. Like I, it was never like people see me and assume that like this and that about my preferences, like sexually or like what my body is like sexually or like you know, what kinds of things that I do or like to do. I never thought about comparing myself to those things as a yardstick. I was imbibing the ideologies where I'm not thinking about it when I was watching pornography or like, you know, reading books. But after that, I like, couldn't not see it. Like it was sort of like a, you know, Garden of Eden situation where like you eat the fruit, then you know. So after that, I really, really struggled for a while. And I guess to some extent still am with sort of reconciling what I want for myself and especially my body with the way that those things are perceived. Like, always understanding that when I project myself into the world, I also am now also seeing myself as an other because I know other people are doing it. Like, I have two sets of eyes now where I'm sort of, like, seeing myself through my own eyes where I'm just, like, I'm a normal dude. And then I'm seeing myself through, like, someone else's eyes, you know what I mean, as, like, this thing that, to some extent, does and does not fulfill the order of tall, huge dick, strong, athletic, beautiful, all that stuff. I've had partners between that person and now, and some of them have been white and some of them have been white women. And I'm so much more secure now in the way that I want to practice sexual behavior that it rarely comes up sexually anymore because I will shut that whole shit down. <laughs> I mean, I've been in a long-term monogamous relationship for a couple of years now, and I sort of went into that relationship being like, okay, here, here's what's not gonna happen. I did a lot of sort of, I wouldn't call it work. 
I did a lot of vetting because I mean this wasn't the only it was the only like overtly sexual instance at that time but it was not the only experience I had of feeling for whatever reason with my romantic or sexual partners that my race was something preventing the person from really appreciating me as a full human being so I went into the relationship I'm in now being like there's absolutely no way I'm letting any of this shit pass the, the, the radar. And like, you know, was very careful to evaluate what kind of values this person had, how that person perceived me. And, and even and even sexually, you know, like I have sort of a hair trigger as far as things like that go. It's hard to live in a body knowing that it is also like an object, like that the whole way you've been taught to view and understand what a person is, is like antithetical to what you are. There is a fetish of the black male body that demands certain things without realizing that those things are demands. Like, assuming that those things are natural. That, like, black men are just like this, right? That's just what their bodies are like. That's just what their preferences are like. That's just how they think. That's just how they act. And when my own behavior cleaves me closer to those things, I'm sort of forced again into that space of, like, potential humiliation, even with things that are very wonderful and empowering for me. Like, for instance, exercise, physical activity. I really love combat sports especially, uh, but also just exercise in general. It's cool, man, to, to feel like an active resident of the thing through which you experience the world, right? But then, like, I'm in the gym, I'm going wild in front of the mirror, like, practicing my boxing, and I realize that I'm a little bit closer to that image, you know, the naturalistic black athlete. There are people have written reams and reams about people thinking black people are naturally more athletic. I'm just like, shit, the fetish sort of is in me now as a part of how I see myself. The other day I was I was leaving an exercise class and the coaches in this class are, are black and I'm like sweaty, you know, my like dreads or whatever, like everywhere. And I like saw myself in the mirror for a second and I had this crazy thought. But I like saw myself in the mirror and I was like, you know, there will always be niggas on the earth. We'll never go away. And for some reason, that was so, I was like so heartwarmed by that phrase. <laughs> Even like, I don't know where it came from. But it just occurred to me that like, no matter how we're seen, and no matter how much we have to negotiate, we're always going to be here. And then there, there will always be tropes or no tropes. Black people, not just black men in this case, but all black people will always find a way to thrive. So that made me kind of happy to think about. Even though I, and I'm sure plenty of other people have experienced similar things. It's a, it's a self-discovery that people who never have to question their subjectivity never get to have. Thanks again for listening to Rearview. This story was originally released as an episode of the podcast West Stories, which was an earlier iteration of Rearview. If you have any questions, want to say hi, or have a story you'd like to tell, please write to us on Facebook or Instagram at Rearview Podcast, or at cshats at wesleyan.edu. That's C-S-C-H-A-T-Z at W-E-S-L-E-Y-A-N dot E-D-U. If you like this episode, you can tell a friend about Rearview. You can also do us a big favor by subscribing to Rearview wherever you listen, by writing a review or leaving us some stars, and by following us on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast is recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claudia Schatz, and co-produced by Eliza Wilkins, who is also in charge of our social media. Our theme music was composed by Julia Mitchell, and this episode's music was Turquoise by Poddington Bear. Our visuals are by Sarah Pinsano and Fig, and you can find links to more of their artwork on our social media pages. Thanks again for listening, and we'll have more stories to share soon. Didn't they just like rehearse it in the staircase? I guess. That's a weird noise to be making.